Welcome to Careers in Discovery, your window into the world of leaders in pharma and biotech. Brought to you by Singular Talent, making hiring better for organizations involved in drug discovery and R&D. Lisa Patel is the CEO of Istessa, a company striding into the unknown frontiers of immunometabolism to discover new treatments for autoimmune conditions. Lisa joined us to talk about her career so far, what it's really like moving from big pharma into a startup, and the dynamics of high-performing teams. This week, I am delighted to be joined by Lisa Patel of Istesso. Lisa, welcome to Careers in Discovery. Thank you, Tom, for inviting me. Oh, thank you for coming on. And I know you've had some uh, unexpected internet challenges this morning, so we appreciate you persevering and, and making it to the show. <laughs> um, we always start, Lisa, by talking a bit about what you're up to now. So I'm, I'm really excited to talk a bit about Estesso. Um, I find the whole immuno- immunology world fascinating and immunometabolism certainly uh, is one of the more interesting areas of that. So please tell us a bit about what you're up to. Cool. So I'm the CEO of Estesso. And um, Esteso is one of the companies at the forefront of applying this new emerging area of science, immunometabolism, to treating autoimmune diseases. Mm-hmm. Um, we think that's got huge potential to really transform the treatment of patients. So essentially, the approach works by um, just nudging the sites of metabolite production or energy generation within immune cells. That leads to some really profound and um, actually astonishing changes in the form and the function of immune cells. Mm -hmm. Effectively, they kind of stand down a kind of pro-inflammatory attack and they regain regulatory functions. And that really has um, a unique profile for autoimmune disease patients. So it's super exciting science and our lead product is actually in phase two B clinical trials for the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis. So that's very exciting as well. Yes. So that that must be one of the more advanced therapies in in the field then, because it's a relatively new field, right? Uh, Yes, it's definitely a new field. Um, And yes, MBS 2320 is certainly one of the leading, if not the most advanced um, small molecules in the field so it's very very exciting um, yeah. yeah to really see what the science can do for patients no absolutely and you're you're working in complex science in immune metabolism you're working in a complex set of diseases in autoimmunity um so i'm sure there's there's plenty of challenges that that you face every day through that um tell us a bit about the company and and where the company's at as well so the company has been growing really rapidly recently. Um, we actually started out from quite a small infrastructure base. So we um, originally were formed as a virtual and yes. we had very few um, full-time employees. In fact, I was the only one for a very long time. <laughs> um, but over the last year and a half or so, we've um, increased headcount by about 600%. So there's uh, seven of us now. Yes. Um, but alongside actually that um, uh, that group of employees, we have a really large network of expert consultants who work across the industry 
um, and actually at sites around the world. So uh, it's really a virtual global organization, I would say. I see. So you've retained some of the some of the benefits of that virtual organization, but just building a bit of a core of, of expertise that, that is the company itself. Um, Yes, and I think once you go into development, um, really to make that transition, you need to have a number of staff who are just there, you know, every day. Yeah. Um, I don't like to say turning the handle, but really building the infrastructure that you need to support a full development asset. Yeah, makes sense. And, and so during that transition over the last year and a half, your role must have changed a fair bit as well. <laughs> so tell us a bit about where you spend most of your time. Um, yes, yeah, so actually, um, I've just been CEO for a year. Actually, it's mm -hmm. next month. Okay. Um, so I spend most of my time um, working with the team, um, thinking about strategy and where we should be going with the development of the assets, um, really building the team, uh, mm. which I think is just fundamental to success in drug discovery and drug development um, and speaking to our consultant teams really I would say the majority of my work is involved in just making sure that that team is running really effectively um, liaising with the board and then also with investors um, and part of my overall job um, also includes some investment work with um, a UK listed investor called IP Group. Mm -hmm. I spend some time as well with them and with some other companies um, who I work with. Yeah, and I was interested to to talk a little bit about that. I appreciate some of it will be confidential, so feel free not to talk about some of it if you can't. But um, that must give you some interesting perspectives on things, the fact that you are able to um, you know, be involved at a board level with other companies and, and that you're able to see how other businesses operate. T tell us a bit about... I guess how you balance your time with those things and how that whole setup works. So I'm super lucky actually to <laughs> be able to get to see um, uh, the work of some of these other companies. There are mm. so many really exciting biotech companies in in the UK, um, and my work with IP Group really involves two things. Firstly, looking at um, some new science that's coming out of UK universities and um, other locations, looking at their potential um, and the rationale for investment with the other mm. members of the team at IP Group, and then sitting on um, the boards uh, as either a representative of IP Group or as a non-exec observer uh, for IP Group. And you know that gives me a really great perspective actually on a couple of things. So when you're in a pharmaceutical company, you're getting to see so many different projects progress and you're getting to see the kinds of challenges that they face and mm. the ways in which you can solve them. And there are so many different ways that you can solve each problem that might come up. So every company has got its own culture and its own way of doing things. If you're in a small biotech, actually, you can um, lose that perspective that there are multiple different approaches to take. Yeah, okay, yeah. So sitting on those boards, I see other CEOs and CSOs, scientists coming up with unique solutions to the challenges that their projects are facing um, and unique strategies, really, to develop their assets. And it gives me the kind of breadth of 
exposure that you might have in a pharmaceutical company, but within a biotech environment. Mm. I think that's really, I, I can't put a price on the value of that. No, of course. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting point. I, I suppose if you're, there's, there's value in being so deep into a program, right? And and to understand it inside out. But as you say, you you can lose some of that perspective or some of that outside influence um, that you might get in a bigger company. I'm sure we'll, we'll perhaps touch on that as we talk about your career a little bit. Um, yes. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, uh, definitely. But, you know, there's also um, uh, extremely experienced investors and strategists who sit on the boards of those mm, companies. Mm. It's not just about what goes on within the company technically, um, but you get some of the benefits of that kind of expertise. And, you know, some of these people are extraordinarily successful um, in their investments, uh, getting to hear how they think, um, getting the benefit of their experience really is, uh, yeah, it, it's really exciting and it's an amazing mm. thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. I can see that. And I was interested as well in in sort of your experiences. As you say, you've been growing the core team in Estesa, but there's still this virtual element to the company, which was there throughout. And I think this is this is clearly a trend we've seen developing over the last several years, probably 10 years, that, that more and more virtual companies exist and people look for leaner ways to operate and, and look at sort of um, outsourcing things that aren't core to the business or, or different different ways to cut up the pie. It's not always about building a team to do everything. There, there are other ways that you can get things done these days. Um, having been in that environment for, for some time now, are there things that you sort of see as, as particular advantages to operating virtually as a business and, and perhaps things that are more challenging? And, and I, I suppose, what have you learned about running that sort of organization over the, the last several years? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I've asked you several questions there. Apologies. <laughs> um, so uh, I think there are some enormous advantages to operating virtually. Mm. Um, when you're a small biotech, um, especially starting up, you have to operate lean, um, conserve costs. And the virtual model really reduces your infrastructure costs. Mm. You can deploy as much of the investment that you have on R&D as you possibly can. Um, you have enormous flexibility uh, to be able to schedule things in. Um, and really, you can um, encourage your contract partners to give you the most competitive um, timeline, the most competitive quality, and the most competitive cost. Mm. You can really build a lot of um, power into your outsourcing if you choose to. The disadvantage is that it's much more difficult to get the scientists who are going to work on your compound or your experiment to really apply their expertise to thinking through any changes that might need to be made when the experiment okay. run on the ground. Um, and my experience is certainly that if you don't have an extremely well-defined communication plan, mm. haven't built up that relationship during the setup of the study properly, then you can face some problems when the experiment actually starts. Yeah, I see. Yeah, so, so that can be a challenge. It's not an insurmountable one, but it just mm -hmm. requires a lot more attention, I think, to communicating what the um, aims of the experiment are and what the issues could be as the experiment gets going. 
That makes sense. I suppose if you're working in an organization, there's inherent context there, right? And there's an inherent understanding of what the bigger picture is and where this experiment's coming from and it, all those things that go along with it. So yeah, that makes sense. And I suppose that's, I would imagine, part of the reason why you've been developing this sort of hybrid model of some in-house and some, some outsourced expertise. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And actually, you know, there's an enormous amount of um, expertise in the UK mm -hmm. from people who were in large pharma who maybe come out of large pharma for one reason or another, um, and whose expertise you can leverage really because those guys have seen so many different projects in so many different situations. By working with them, you you really get the power of that pharmaceutical industry breadth and expertise um, in a small biotech. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's it's a good way to, as you say, bring in expertise that when you're in a startup or early stage organization and cost is so important, you bring in expertise that you just couldn't afford otherwise, right? Or you just couldn't yeah. access otherwise. Yeah. So I'm really interested to talk about your journey to this point as well. And I'm sure we'll talk about Estesso more along that journey. Um, if I have got the right information here, Lisa, then you're a molecular geneticist by training. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm, yes, I am. Um, although since actually training, I've never actually done molecular genetics again. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Um, well, let's let's go back to the beginning, though. So, so why for you to start with? Why why science first of all? Why um, biology as a as a sort of overarching topic? Why why health and drugs and and um, therapies and all that kind of thing? What was the origins of this career for you? What were the origins? I should say. Mm, that's a really interesting question. I think um, when you know, I loved science um, when I was at school mm. and I had some really um, amazing teachers and they really encouraged us. Um, it was a girls school to uh, pursue our interests and, uh, you know, to study science actively. Um, and my mum was a nurse. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we used to speak a lot about healthcare at home. I see. Uh, and her interest in it. And she'd originally wanted to be a doctor, actually, but um, hadn't been able to afford the tuition fees for it. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess it really came uh, from those two angles. This, uh, I had an absolutely brilliant biology teacher, Mrs. Roberts. Um, and between her and my mom, they really encouraged me um, in my love of Actually, anatomy. I had a copy of Grey's Anatomy when I was 13. Okay. Read at the weekend. Um, I obviously wasn't the coolest teenager. <laughs> um, but I also actually, I remember going on a visit to a shell plant um, at some point during my career and really being inspired by a chemist who was talking about mm. and colloids. Um, so I, between that love of biology and that really strong interest in chemistry, actually biochemistry um, emerged as something that I wanted to study. Yes. Uh, actually, that's what I did for my first degree. I um, see. Yeah. And, you know, the more I studied that, the more I 
understood that actually kind of trying to exploit that to treat disease was probably where my real interests lay. Mm. Um, and I think that naturally kind of leads to drug R&D as a home. No, absolutely. Um, it's, it's amazing how often um, a f- a influential teacher plays a part in these things, actually, when we talk to people about this. And, and as you say, if you've got that um, home environment where health is, is sort of on the agenda um, in different topics, sometimes it's for some people, it's someone gets ill or for some people, it's someone's a healthcare professional, as it, as it was in your case. I think those things are very very formative for people actually subconsciously as much as anything else mm, I think so yeah I, my mum actually did get ill and uh, one okay. of the conversations we had actually was about making medicines so um that's yeah certainly a motivator it's been a lifelong motivator mm, mm, I see I see yeah. so so talk us through the rest of the journey then so you, you decided that that biochemistry was the route for you to go and you started studying that and then then Take us through your journey from there. I actually had this um, brilliant lecturer called uh, Peter Little, and he's the one who really got me interested in molecular genetics. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that uh, that took me down that path briefly. Um, and that after, actually after having studied molecular genetics, I decided to apply for some jobs in industry and yes. um, Smith Klein Beecham were advertising for a molecular biologist to join one of their teams. So I put in an application and I was really, I was really lucky. They were really lucky as well. Yes. Um, and they gave me a break um, and offered me a job as a scientist um, to join their vascular biology team. And that was really the start of my career in drug R&D. Um, so I was I was able to join a team who'd successfully launched a drug. Um, and that gave them an enormous amount of experience and knowledge, mm. you know, and actually some team spirits because, you know, they'd been doing this for such a long time together. Um, that really, it was like joining a group of friends. Right. Um, I think that it gave me a kind of love of working in a high-performing team um, because even now, actually, those people who I worked with, and, you know, we're going back a couple of decades now, are still friends. Right. Um, and we're still friends. Um, and sometimes I think that can happen if you're working in a really close-knit team, tackling a really difficult problem, you develop the sorts of relationships by doing that that can be lifelong Mm. um so yeah so that was really formative for me and we worked on lots of new ideas and new projects and because I was the person who'd come in to do molecular biology they gave me the opportunity to set up um, a a small lab with some molecular biology equipment yes Um, but I rapidly learned that actually um if I just stuck to uh, that one particular discipline wouldn't really get to see what was going on overall in drug R&D. But actually, I had an absolutely brilliant manager. So his name was Colin McVie. He was amazing, Um, really um, a mentor and a guide and a teacher. And he just gave me opportunities to um, pursue my own ideas, um, to pick up projects. Uh, He would take my suggestions and run with them. 
Um, and that was an extraordinarily fulfilling thing, but also yeah. such a great learning experience because if you can, um, if you have the space to try something and then fail and not get condemned for it, you know, you can come back with better ideas each time. So, uh, yeah, he's absolutely brilliant. Mm. I'll say his name again. <laughs> So hopefully he's listening and he hears that. Um, so that's interesting. I think a couple of things there. So um, as you say, you joined a team that had successfully taken a drug um, through to market, which actually isn't that common, of course. You know, it's it's uh, it's not always that that happens. And and you feel that there was there was um, impact from that success on the environment of the team and the culture of the team but you also talked about the relationships in the team um so it sounds like there are probably things that have stayed with you through your career from being part of that team anything particular that you'd you'd pick out as the, the most important lessons from that experience well that's tricky <laughs> um well scientifically um scientifically a really crucial lesson was to actually to not give up mm. quickly um you know to understand that actually every project is going to face a hurdle and often what drives success will be someone championing it and continuing to try and think of solutions to those problems um, and there were lots of examples uh, in the journey for that drug and also um, uh, in other projects that we worked on where we wouldn't we wouldn't say that something had failed immediately. We would try mm -hmm. and understand it first. Um, and that's really stayed with me. I'm really keen to understand our results before making too many decisions on the back of them. Non-scientifically, met my best friend there, um, lots and lots of my other good friends, um, and they've all grown in their careers. Yes. We still have a network that um, I I still leverage uh, today. Um, yeah, I think as is often the way in a um, team that starts out high performing, the individuals will go on to then create further high performing teams. Mm -hmm. uh, there's definitely examples of that from people who are in that department. Um, yeah, lots of examples of that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think those those habits that you pick up stay with you, right? And so people then take them elsewhere and, and as you say, they they hopefully spread the spread the gospel as it were. But <laughs> I suppose this this is probably difficult to figure out which one came first, but you talked about the relationships in that team. And I suppose the the connection between that and the high performance environment and and interesting to think about which comes first right do those relationships form because of the high performance and because of the success of the team and because of the experiences they go through or, or do the relationships actually enable the team to perform well i don't know if you have any thoughts mm. on that i appreciate it's quite a, it's not a straightforward question <laughs> no it's a really interesting um Thing, isn't it? And I'm sure that there are experts in um, mm. team culture and human resources who will be able to 
answer it better than me. My experience is actually that um, it's not success that drives the cohesion of a team. It's um, basing a challenge together mm -hmm. and having a shared commitment to solving that challenge that really builds the relationship. Because once you see how a person faces a difficulty or an adversity, you can understand them much better. And you there's a there's a kind of trust, you know, um, if you're not going to give up and they're not going to give up, then you're in it together. Um, and I think that having that shared understanding that you're committed is actually what then drives the success. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, there's a, yeah, there's a lot of research showing that teams that get on well perform better. Um, hard to pinpoint the origin, but that that idea of facing challenges together, I, I think, makes a lot of sense. Um, and you also talked about having those opportunities to fail. I think that uh, is, you know, it's it's challenging in an environment that um, you know success is so valuable right and failure is so expensive but um but you felt that was very formative for you to do yeah really um yeah definitely i i mean i you know i can remember um a day when uh when colin had actually asked me to give a presentation to some of the directors um at smith Klein. at that time peter goodfellow was the um uh head of r d and I was presenting in an office opposite him and he decided to walk in and sit down for the presentation. And there was no opportunity for me to bow out because he was so good for that. Um, and so I had to just keep going with, um, with my presentation and present my ideas. And, you know, with hindsight, they were not great ideas. Um, but actually, you know, the whole group of these really senior directors and Peter Goodfellow all listened, gave me critique, and actually then helped me to explore how those ideas might develop mm. so that I would learn for myself that they weren't really great. Um, I think it's very, very difficult when resources are limited and when there's time pressure to actually do that. But I think it's so important um, to try and find the space um, for it to happen because oh I think um the level of ex experience that you get from that um is critical to developing your career but also you know we really need to keep developing expertise and our um skills in the fastest mm. in this country I think we've been historically brilliant at it and um you know, we need young people to get that same experience of being able to try things, get them wrong, and then start again. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's you can't learn without it, right? Especially, especially in a in a discipline that is often not a defined right answer that people have established already. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you if you're working in a field like immunometabolism, for example, there aren't a lot of um kind of established truths i imagine you know there's a lot of unexplored territory um that you you're diving into so um the only way you can find those things out is by getting them wrong in the first place right i think so yeah um, what i love about science is that um about biology especially is that biology teaches you doesn't it it's very difficult to 
understand. Um, mm. Every time you do an experiment, you're just finding something else out that's new again. Um, yeah. It's exciting. It is. It is. And so you were with Smith Klein Beecham and, and later GSK as it as it evolved for for ten years, um, which is a good a good shift. Um, I think you you did your time there. <laughs> oh, you know what? I loved it, Tom. I absolutely loved yeah. it. Yeah, it was brilliant. Yeah, I've got not a bad word to say about about my time there. No, that's good. That's good. And then. Obviously, we've talked a little bit about Estesso. We've not really talked about sort of the origins of your involvement in it, so it'd be good to come on to that. But that was quite a different proposition, I imagine, um, yeah. to being part of this this huge established organisation with lots of track record to going into something that, I guess, didn't really exist at the time that you got involved. Um, yeah, so actually, um, I the reason I left GSK was that... Uh, the company had decided to withdraw from um, cardiovascular R&D, mm -hmm. where I was in the UK. Uh, and I spent some time in clinical pharmacology and discovery medicine, exploring a move to the US. Um, but it, in the end, uh, decided that wasn't going to work. I wanted to stay here. I just finished my MBA. And um, as part of that, I studied entrepreneurship and um, knowledge management. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I wanted to do something that was a bit more entrepreneurial um, and a bit different. And so I started thinking about ways in which I'd be able to do that um, in science. And actually, um, in the course of doing that, I met Sam, who was the CEO of the company uh, until last year when I took over. Mm -hmm. Um. And it just seemed a great fit for me to move into this kind of small startup business uh, that was actually formed originally as a virtual home for really exciting new projects um, in the UK. So they were looking for someone who had a kind of broad experience of drug discovery and development, yeah. uh, who had some project management skills and who would be comfortable in a kind of more business environment. Um, and I was looking for somewhere where I could, I guess, test my mettle um, with a view to moving into something maybe of my own um, in the future. So mm. I made the move. Oh my goodness, I had no idea. Tom, what it would be. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us a bit about that. What were the most What were the most surprising things? What were the things that sort of stick in the memory for you in in making that transition? Um. I think uh, I actually had no concept of what the world was like um, outside GSK. So right. I, I spent a decade within this blue chip organization. Everything was available. You know, mm. you, just went, you just went down the corridor to stores. Um, <laughs> and uh, I remember coming um, and meeting Sam for the first time. And it was in a really plush um, office in the city. And I thought, oh, this must be the company. And I naively had assumed the whole building was the company. Right. And I remember showing up on the first day and going into a room and there was four desks in it and saying, oh, right, where, where's the canteen? I'm like, there's no canteen, go to Pret. <laughs> oh, because I just didn't, it didn't compute for me that even a small biotech yeah. 
would not have the whole building. Um, and so there I was, having gone from um, the complex science, I guess, palace of uh, GSK to an office with a computer um, and a photocopier. And I remember sitting down at my desk that day and just thinking, oh, but how do I do this? <laughs> Um, and then having to learn about the contract and outsource world, having to learn what the biotech environment was like. Yeah. I remember going to Genesis meetings and just taking every single meeting that I mm. could to get to know what people did um, and how they did it. It was an extremely steep learning curve for a year. Um, and also at the same time, you know, whilst trying to establish, you know, a position in that ecosystem to try and find ways of working without being able to just go for a coffee with a pharmacokineticist. Right. And yes. I want to do this. And they say, OK, we'll put it in the schedule and it just be done. Um, mm -hmm. Finding new ways to think about those experiments. And then to get them done was uh, also a learning curve. I can imagine, yeah. And I, you know, I, I don't know if it was the same when you were there, but I know the first time I went to GSK actually was um, in Brentford. And I remember being amazed because it's not just a canteen, is it? It's, you know, there's three restaurants, there's a hairdresser's, there's a gym, there's, you know, it's it's a different world to to, as you say, being in a serviced office with four desks. Yes. Um, and but but also, as you say, you've got that ready made network of, I mean, real experts in every scientific discipline you can think of and not just the scientific ones, but then also the commercial ones and, the, yeah. you know, everything else as well. Yeah. Um, and I think. Um, yeah, it, I would I would suspect it probably sharpens your thinking a bit around some of this stuff, not having all of that resource, but then, you know, there's some benefits having all of that resource and being able to just try things out right and and get answers to, to lots of different questions so yeah I, I can I can imagine the the contrast between the two coming into it um coming into it like that but um I, I I'm asking you to summarize quite a long period of time here so uh so I appreciate that's challenging but but tell us then a bit about Esteso from there on in and and sort of the things that were formative for you the things that were learning experiences for you I know the the or the sort of the company has been through changes uh, as you've touched on mm -hmm. some of them um so talk us through a bit about that next part of your career um yeah so having joined the company actually um it ends up um it actually ends up being just me and um Sam as the CEO uh, for a little while, and I was the um, I was the, the only employee on the mm -hmm. ground. Um, and so suddenly, really, um, I was literally by myself mm -hmm. uh, with a computer and Sam on the phone. Um, Sam's background is um, in investment. So he was a um, healthcare analyst mm -hmm. um, and he's got enormous kind of commercial and business development um, expertise. 
uh, and he's really a he's a top class investor, I would say. Mm. Um, but in terms of actual hands on experience in drug discovery at that time, really not. He, he hadn't. Yeah. Any um, experience. So so there I was uh, with Google. Um, with a computer and down the road from the British Library, we actually had a tight budget because um, their credit crunch had hit. Mm. So suddenly, um, you know, I was really faced with thinking about things in the most creative way that I could. How quickly could I get to a point at which we would be able to say, this is a, a yes, we can continue, or this is a no, we have to stop. Right. Um, and it really sharpened the mind. Um because suddenly everything that's extraneous has to go and you're just focusing on exactly the um, experiments that are going to build value. Mm-hmm. And actually we had this really interesting um, project that um, we'd seen um, that actually originally they um, had worked on the science at the University of Aberdeen. And... They'd identified these compounds phenotypically as having a really interesting biological profile. Yes. Super interesting. Um, but they had no idea how it worked. Um, neither did I. And so as well as trying to, you know, make these compounds more drug-like, um, I started trying to think of ways in which we could understand how they were actually working. What was mm-hmm. their method? Because it was really a black box. So we started doing that kind of in parallel, um, mainly focusing on making drug-like molecules and then every now and again, when we could, squeezing in a bit of biology um, to see if we could tease it out. Yes. That actually went on for a number of years. Um, and then we were really um, lucky. We got an award from um, what was then the Biomedical Catalyst. It's now mm-hmm. Innovative And they mm-hmm. saw some potential in the science. Um, and that was the start of really building out the consultant team. So for the first time, I was able to actually find some experts who could look at it and say, actually, let's do it this way. Right. Um, uh, because there was times where I'd been going to the British Museum, uh, the British Library and trying to read papers and work out how to design an experiment and then telling a CRO. It probably wasn't the most ideal thing. <laughs> But, I mean, it got us where we are, so it's okay. Um, and I think, you know, sometimes those constraints, that, like you say, they they force you to be creative, right? They force you to think of different ways to approach things. Did you, once you'd gotten over the initial shock, <laughs> did you find you quite, quite like that setup? But, you know, obviously there are challenges, but what was your experience of of working independently like that? Um. I actually really enjoyed it. So I think mm. I mentioned that I um, had done an MBA. I studied entrepreneurship. Yes. I guess in the course of my life, I have um, maybe written 20 to 25 business plans and started lots of little companies and then mm-hmm. um, in, in lots of different areas. So I kind of see myself as a bit of a, I'm just really interested in starting things up by myself right. and seeing how they go. Uh, so here I was in a biotech environment, really relying on myself, having to be entrepreneurial, having mm. to out and um, convince people to prioritise my project over some, I don't know, a big project from a big blue chip pharmaceutical company. Yes. Um, 
really having to sell it um, to people. I really loved it. I just really loved it. Um, and I love the intellectual challenge that comes with it as well. Um, yeah, I think there's no there's no better industry uh, to be in if you want an intellectual challenge. Yes, I can see that. I can see that. And the, the sort of the dichotomy, I suppose, is that having been through that process of having to be creative and having to think about things differently, if you now have that resource that you had at the beginning of your career, then, you know, what you could do with that would be would be huge, right? But then would you have developed those skills with with that resource there and without having those constraints? It's a it's an interesting um thought exercise anyway <laughs> um, um and then and then so you you mentioned earlier as well that that there's now been an acceleration in the company and mm -hmm. and you've really pushed your programs on and and there's real progress behind them so what were the kind of catalysts for that and and how did events unfold um more recently uh, so we've actually um been supported by innovate three times we've had three mm -hmm. And then and they've really been transformational for this project because um the first award was aimed at supporting us declaring candidate going into early stage clinical trials and trying mm -hmm. to dissect the mechanism and actually that's what told us that this was an immunometabolism project and actually at the time there was really no literature on immunometabolism at all yes. in fact it was a complete surprised that um, one could modulate metabolism and generate these sorts of biological effects. Um, the second award we got from Innovate was to um, take the project further in discovery phase two. And actually, we now have a third Innovate award, which is exploring new indications for this compound. Mm -hmm. So they really um, lived up to their name in terms of catalyzing biomedical work yes um and that's been completely transformational uh it also the awards were also aimed at helping us build out this consultant team um and that really is what set us off down the road of this kind of semi-virtual um you know, i think i called it a semi-virtual global model before mm -hmm. um so this kind of semi-virtual global model that we run yeah. Um, and then we've had support from IP Group, who I mentioned earlier as well, um, uh, who are our main investors. So they've been really supportive of the project um, and really followed it. Um, and yeah, they continue to be really supportive and to talk about what we're doing um, and to leverage their networks to try and help us as well. Yes. Um, so yeah, two really amazing um, things to have, I think, a supportive investor and a, an expert team, I think gives the project the best chance of success. Certainly helps, absolutely. <laughs> um, and, and then I suppose there's, there's kind of two sides to this question. Um, so you've obviously developed a career as a scientist initially and then that that has remained a thread throughout your career is the sort of scientific um or the focus on the science of drug discovery i suppose is, is the way to think about it but then also latterly you've you've developed um a, a expertise in running a biotech business and in building a biotech business and advancing a therapy with all the other things outside of the science that go along um with with and executing that sort of project. Um, 
I suppose in both of those areas, you may have talked about some of this already, but are there things you would point to as sort of the most important lessons that you've learned over the course of your career to date or the, the things that have been most um, most impactful for you in your development? It's quite tricky. You ask good questions, Tom. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I would say that the number one thing that has that has helped me is to become comfortable with not knowing things mm -hmm. and to ask questions to help me learn. Um, and, you know, credit Sam, um, who I've mentioned before uh, with teaching me that, that he will ask questions and ask questions until he understands something. And in doing that, he brings out so much information mm. um, from the person he's speaking to. And I've really learned to get comfortable with, with not knowing and with risk, I think, because um, there's a risk in not knowing, isn't there? Um, yes, true. Yeah. So once you realise that you don't know everything, suddenly the world of expertise and knowledge becomes open and accessible to you because I think you're not scared to say, look, I don't know, please tell me what you would do. Um, the more times you do that, the more you can see through to what the solution is. Mm. Yeah. 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 I think so. And yeah, you've got to be comfortable with risk. But if you're not comfortable with risk, really, you want to win. <laughs> you're not going to win. Yeah. Yeah. Perhaps in the wrong place if you're not happy with that. But um, I think that idea of becoming comfortable with not knowing things is a challenge for a lot of people. And um, I don't, I'm not saying particularly for scientists necessarily, because I think it applies to a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds. But of course, particularly in academia as a scientist, you get rewarded for knowing things, right? And knowing things in a lot of detail. So any any tips on becoming comfortable with that or, or becoming comfortable in, in not knowing the answer and asking the questions? I think, um... You know, when I started out in my career, I felt that if I didn't know things, people would not value me as mm. uh, which speaks to that idea, I think, of, um, of of having knowledge as value. Yes. Um, and it took me some time to learn that actually it's not the knowing things that carries the value. It's the ability to learn things that carries the value in it's a continual learning process throughout the life cycle of a product yes um and once I learned that I realized that actually the more I asked questions and the more I showed that I didn't know things the more chance of success we have and actually you know I've built our team specifically full of people who are very comfortable with saying that they don't know and asking um Fingers crossed that will stand us well for the future. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I think it's that um, the value of learning versus the value of knowing that is the critical thing. It's a really interesting distinction, actually. And I think, um, you know, particularly as, as 
the pace of progress increases, right? You, you're just not going to be able to know everything. And it is going to be about being able to adapt and learn. Um, and, you know, even in more traditional areas of therapy, if you're developing a small molecule for, um, for a more traditional cardiovascular disease, for example, um, the way that it was done 10 years ago is not the way that people do it today. And the way that it'll be done in five years time won't be the way that it's done today either. And I think it's a really interesting distinction to draw is, is that difference between learning and knowing. It's helpful to do that. Thank you. Um, and, and it sounds like a fascinating time for you and for Esteso, um, you know, with, with a program advancing pretty far into the clinic now and, and also looking at new applications, new indications of the technology. Um, tell, us a, tell us a bit about what's next and what's, what's on the immediate agenda. Well, so I know I've um, talked quite a lot about uh, MBS2320, which is our lead drug. We've actually got a pipeline of some other assets mm. um, behind it. So those are progressing and actually they're showing us some really interesting biology. Um, but really alongside that, um, a lot of our effort is going into building our development organisation. Mm -hmm. So not just supporting MBS2320 going through phase 2B. Um uh, and ready for the readout of the results, um, which is going to be in 2024, uh, but also so that we're ready ultimately to transition into pivotal studies yes, um, as well, and to support an expansion out of those uh, indications and usage, uh, usages of MBS2320. So that's really where our focus is. I think um, that's where our news is going to come from um, over the next couple of years. And mm. uh, yeah, hopefully we can show what immunometabolism can do. Um, that would be an amazing result, I think, for us if we can. No, absolutely. And look, you know, we wish you the best of luck with it. It's always very exciting to see people doing something genuinely new. Um, and, uh, and we hope it goes very well. We'll be keeping an eye out. Thank you. Keep your fingers crossed. Thanks for joining us on Careers in Discovery, and don't forget to subscribe for more insight into the world of drug discovery and R&D. Do take a look at our sponsors, Singular Talent, and their mission to make hiring better for companies and individuals in drug discovery and R&D. You can find them at www.singulartalent.io. See you next time.